we're concluding today uh, this, this mini-series that we've been doing, The Church and the Spirit. And we, we wanted to set aside this, you know, kind of this special time over the last four to six weeks, whatever it's been, as we've mentioned, to take a pretty thorough look at the person, the work, the ministry of the Spirit. And, but the, the bigger goal was not to simply uh, learn more, although that was certainly part of it. We, we want to have these experiences as a part of our life experience as Christians and part of our experience as God's people when we gather. So one of the things that I hope we take away is that God fully intends that his people should regularly be experiencing the supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit through the gifts. So again, not just getting information, not just growing in our understanding, but growing in our experience. And today, when we finish up today, I, I want to take a few minutes at the end of the service, and I want us to, um, to be able to be prayed for, to experience these things, to, to be filled with the Spirit. So, um, you know, tra- traditionally Sunday morning, you're, you're sort of um, aware that you have visitors and outside people. So Sunday morning would tend a lot of times to not go too deeply into more intimate kinds of things like laying hands on people and praying for them and so forth. But, you know, I don't know who made those rules up but we're going to break them today. Um, and I'll say, I'll say more before we get there. But, you know, I don't want anybody to be freaked out, anybody to be scared away over these things. But, you know, we have to get beyond um, spectating. We have to get beyond church-going we have to engage as the people of God. And it starts among us and then spreads out from us. So when Jesus sent his followers out to establish his church in the hostile, pagan, idolatrous world of the first century, he sent them out with power. Remember the things that he said to them. He said, initially, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. In a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And... These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. So 
Jesus said this is what they were to do. They were to wait for this power to come upon them. And then when the power came upon them, then they would go out being his witnesses and these signs would follow those who believe. So just as supernatural Holy Spirit power was needed in the early days of the life of the church, the same is needed today in the hostile, pagan, idolatrous world of the 21st century. Because as I've stated many times before, the world has, in many ways, come back around to what it was like before the gospel came into it. And this happens, happens over and over and over again. And by God's grace, he does at times intervene and stop the madness by, by pouring out his spirit. And that's what we long to see. And so, thank God, the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are freely given and available to us today as we seek to see the church grow and the kingdom of God advanced. But we must be careful. And this is really the gist of this 14th chapter. We must be careful to create environments where God can work unhindered. Some traditions are so ordered that there is zero room for any spontaneous moving of the Holy Spirit. The services are mechanical and the responses are robotic. On the other hand, other traditions are so spontaneous that there's no apparent rhyme or reason to the gathering. There doesn't seem to be any discernible purpose to the service at all. One type of service seems dead, the other chaotic. Neither of these represent who God is, what he's like, or what he is doing. Paul is concerned that the church gathered, the church gathered, that's us, is a place where believers can learn about and experience God and unbelievers can encounter the presence and the power of God. And in having that encounter with God can have the secrets of their hearts laid bare and fall down and worship. Neither of these things will happen if our gatherings are rigid and lifeless on the one hand or chaotic and filled with confusion on the other. So really the 14th chapter is primarily about order. That, that's the reason Paul wrote this 14th chapter. Remember, in the 12th chapter, he kind of spelled out for us those manifestations of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. He talked to us about uh, the, the one body that is uh, to edify itself. And then the 13th chapter, he 
having encouraged us to, to pursue, to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. The 13th chapter is the environment that they are to occur in, and it's that environment of love. And now the 14th chapter is talking about the necessity of order. So Paul's final instruction on the gifts is all about using them properly in a God-honoring manner and that the gatherings be marked by behavior that is fitting and orderly for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, I don't know what your experience has been uh, but some of you might know these two different experiences that I described because you have been in those environments. You perhaps have been in a place where things are so ordered as to quench the spirit. And everything is rigid and everything is lifeless and although there might be a, a belief in the truth, there's an orthodox theological position, there, the, the place is dead. Others perhaps have been in that other extreme where there's plenty of life, but it's wildlife. It's crazy. It doesn't seem to make any sense. What, what is going on here? And so, we want to land in that place that Paul describes here. And I, I think that historically, Calvary Chapel has made an effort to not be at either extreme, but in that effort, we've we've kind of, you know, we, we have so much not wanted to be the wild and crazy place that I think we've drifted over a little bit into the side of not deadness, but sometimes restrictiveness. Sometimes we're restricted where, you know, rigid is maybe too strong of a word, but restricted where we don't feel at times the freedom to express what the Spirit is, is wanting to do. And, you know, there, there have been times in the past history of this church where uh, things were very restrictive. If you felt uh, moved during worship that you should stand and lift your hands, you would promptly be uh, encouraged to sit down because that was not allowed. And, and I think that was... That was a, uh, an indication that we had gone too far. We're so concerned about not being wild and crazy that we, we went too far to the other side. So I, I don't even want to use the word middle, <laughs> but, but, we, but what we, I, I'm, I'm going to just use the word biblical. Let's just use the word biblical. We want our services to be biblical and this 14th chapter, I think, gives us a good picture of what that will not look like and what it will 
look like. So Paul here is going to, remember, he's addressing the issue of order, and he's going to talk specifically about tongues. We've talked about tongues, so I'm not going to go into any kind of big explanation about you know, just exactly what tongues are, but he's going to talk about the, the use of tongues, the exercise of tongues. And remember, all of this is in the congregational setting. Remember, it's all in the environment like we are in here today. So he's going to talk about tongues. He's going to talk about prophecy. And then he's going to talk about a particular disruptive behavior that was happening there in the Corinthian church. So, what does Paul say about tongues? Look at verse 18. And note this, Paul is not down on tongues. Now, I say that because, you know, some people think that he is. Some people would say that based on Paul's teaching, we should not try to have that experience. And today, there are people that have uh, sort of an indifference toward tongues, and there would be very much uh, uh, a sense that that's not proper or to be encouraged or experienced. Some would have a downright hostility toward tongues, Tongues, and, and I'm talking about church leaders. I mentioned before in passing that one very well-known evangelical leader uh, wrote a book many years ago. Um, I think the book was called Charismatic Chaos. And, you know, he has a, a paragraph in there where he literally says that tongues, people speaking in tongues are being influenced by Satan. Now, and, and he thinks he has the, the support of Paul the Apostle on that. But he doesn't. Because, look what Paul says in verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul, he speaks in tongues. He says to them, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul is not down on tongues. What is Paul down on? Well, number one, as he states throughout the passage here, uh, he's down on multiple tongues being spoken out loud simultaneously because that's confusing. And remember, he illustrated it. If, if everyone is simultaneously speaking in tongues and an unbeliever walks in, they're gonna think these people are mad. So he's, he, he doesn't allow for that, and secondly, he's down on tongues without an interpretation in the general assembly because it edifies only the speaker and the gifts are for the profit of all. So, and he, he stated that many times over, that the gifts are not for the, 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 the personal edification of the one exercising the gift as much as they are for the body collectively. And so, Paul forbids those kinds of um, tongue experiences. 
But not only does he say he speaks in tongues more than they did, but then he gives the proper way of exercising the gift. So in verse 27, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. So two or three at the most with an interpreter, that's, that's how tongues are to be exercised in a congregational setting. And then if there is no interpreter, look in verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So if there's no interpreter, then the tongue is to be spoken quietly, softly, under one's breath, so that you're speaking to God, but the edification is going on between you and the Lord, but the people around you are not missing out on being edified, nor are they confused by what's happening. So that's Paul's instruction on tongues. And then he moves to prophecy. Now remember that, that Paul, for Paul, prophecy is really the gift that we should eagerly pursue. And his reasoning behind that is because prophecy edifies the church. And remember what he said in verse 3. He said, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And so prophecy is important to the apostle. He says that if you are going to seek to excel in the gift, seek to excel in this gift because of what the gift does. It strengthens, it encourages, and it comforts people. And that's what we need. But even with prophecy, there is to be an order. So it's not just to be a haphazard sort of a experience where anybody and everybody is shouting out a prophetic word here and there and everywhere with, with no uh, order to it. Paul gives the instruction that two or three are to prophesy in consecutive order. So they're not to prophesy simultaneously because, again, that's confusion. But they're to, they're to prophesy in consecutive order. They're to prophesy. People are to listen. They finish. And then he says that the others there are to weigh what they said meaning to evaluate it or to judge it, to, to discern, is, is this a word from the Lord? And so as there's agreement that this is a word from the Lord, then there is, um, you know, the, there's the receiving of that word. Think of, I think a great example of this would be in Acts chapter 11, where the church leadership... It could have been beyond that, but there's people that are gathered together, 
And among them, there are certain prophets and teachers. And I think seven different names are listed there. And Paul and Barnabas, or Saul, as was his name at the time, Saul and Barnabas are there in the midst. And it says, and as they fasted and ministered to the Lord, the Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. And as we read that, we probably wonder, well, what did that look like? Well, I think that looked exactly like what what Paul is talking about here, that there they are, they're gathered together in the group, and they're waiting upon the Lord, and somebody speaks out this word. It wasn't uh, an audible voice came out of nowhere and said, separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, but it was somebody in the group had this prophetic word. And as the others listened, they bore witness that this was indeed a word from the Lord, and Barnabas and Saul were then sent out on their missionary journey. But but that's the kind of thing that happens there. So even though prophecy is preferred over tongues, there are still guidelines to keep things orderly. You know, God is a God of order, not of chaos. It's funny how sometimes people... um, Sometimes people who I think are not so careful with their understanding of the Spirit and uh, the the ministry of the Spirit, they sort of tend to think that it's supposed to be chaotic. Nothing God does is chaotic. God is not the author of chaos. God is a God of order. God is a God of precision. Just ask the physicist, ask the mathematicians. They'll tell you how precisely the universe is ordered by God. So we shouldn't expect that the God who ordered the universe so precisely would then, with his own people, say, hey, don't worry about it. Just whatever whatever you feel like doing, go for it. No, there, there is to be order. There is to be precision, but not to the point, like we're saying, of quenching the spirit. So, prophecy is preferred over tongues, but there are still guidelines to keep things in order because God is not the author of confusion. Now, as we come to verses 34 and 35, So Paul's not changing the subject here. He's talking about the same thing. He's just giving now another example of where this disorder is happening. And so the verses, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. These verses that have often been used to support the idea that a woman cannot teach in the church, listen, 
have nothing whatsoever to do with that subject. You see, to, to take it and try to make it say that, you're wrenching these verses completely out of their context. That, that's not the context. The context is not really what can women do in the church. The context is there's disorder in the church and it needs to stop. That, so this is, you know, when we talk about studying the Bible and understanding it in its context, it's important that we get the context. Because if we don't get the context, we will come up with the wrong conclusion. So this is a particular situation that was happening in Corinth with some of the women in the church, but even more specifically with some of the wives. Paul is talking to wives, or he's referring to wives here, not to women in general. Now, I say that because there's one Greek word that is translated both women and wives throughout the New Testament. And the context of the word determines whether it's women or wives. Now here, I think wives is obviously what Paul is or who Paul is referring to because he references their husbands. And some manuscripts read your women or wives. What makes more sense? Your women are not to speak or your wives are not to speak? I think your wives is clearly what is being said. So I'm not wanting to take a big diversion on this. This is a, a topic in and of itself, but I do want to say a few more things about it. So is Paul saying that women are not allowed to speak in church? Now, listen, some Bible teachers, many commentators, and even study Bibles amazingly to me, will wrench this statement out of its context and just say, this is it. Women are to be silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak. Could Paul really be saying that? That hardly seems likely since in an earlier chapter, he spoke of women praying and prophesying in the church. So if, if, Paul, if Paul is now saying, having said in chapter 11, verse 5, that women pray and prophesy in the church, now if in chapter 14 he's saying they can't do that, Paul is confused. And listen, there are theologians and there are people who reject any limitations for women in ministry in the church, and they actually argue and say, Paul didn't even know exactly what he believed about it because, look, he says one thing here and he says another thing there. And more conservative scholars have lent to the idea because they insist that Paul is saying here that women can't speak in the church, period. Period. 
End of discussion. So it's the ultra-conservative people that are giving some place to the others to argue that Paul didn't really himself know exactly how he felt about it. So if Paul was uncertain, why should we be dogmatic about it? But Paul was not uncertain. And he's not contradicting himself. He's not talking about what they say he's talking about. Now, since the context is order versus disorder, it seems to me that Paul is forbidding these wives from speaking out disruptively. Now, now let me read to you the same passage with that emphasis, and you tell me if it doesn't seem to make the most sense. So I'm just going to read it with that emphasis. Wives should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak out but must be submissive, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. And listen to the strong wording. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or is it disgraceful for a woman to speak out disruptively in the church? Well, to me, I think it's pretty clear that it would be disgraceful for disruptive speech but it couldn't be disgraceful just for speech in general because, like we already said, Paul recognizes that women pray and prophesy in the church. So I think Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the passage in the message really nailed it. I think he got what the gist of what Paul was saying was all about. And this is how he put it. Wives must not disrupt worship, talking when they should be listening, asking questions that could more appropriately be asked of their husbands at home. God's book of the law guides our manners and customs here. Wives have no license to use the time of worship for unwarranted speaking. That, that's what he's talking about here. Because remember, it's in a context. And the whole issue here, this is, this is incidental. It's just this, this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. There's disorder with tongues. There's confusion over prophecy. And there's this group of wives that are speaking out disruptively. And they are creating disorder. And so Paul says that that is not to be done. So much more could be said about women's roles in the church, but suffice it to say that the idea that a woman cannot speak or teach in the church is an interpretation of a few biblical texts, and I think an incorrect and harmful interpretation, and not at all what Paul is addressing here. So, 
That's what this passage is about. It is not about prohibiting women from speaking, praying, prophesying, teaching. Before Cheryl met me, she had dated this this guy. And um, I remember she told me this story shortly after we knew each other, and it, it just stuck with me all these years because it was so hilarious, and especially knowing Cheryl. So she's dating this guy, and he suggested, why don't we study, was it Joshua? Or, why don't we study Joshua together? And so Cheryl said, well, of course, and I love that, and I love Joshua, and she started to sort of make some comments, and he went, shh, 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 shh. Let the women keep silent in the church. Well, needless to say, that was the last date that Cheryl had with this guy. But see, that, that's an example of where this, this teaching has trickled down to you know, a, a personal Bible study with a couple of people. So, God help us. Now, in the remainder of the chapter, Paul, he reasserts his apostolic authority. Paul recognizes that he's going to get some pushback. They're not going to really like what he's saying about some of these things. <clears throat> and so that's when he, when he says, are you the only people? Or, or did, did the word of God originate with you? Or, or are you the only people it has reached and then he says, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, so they might say, well, we've got the Spirit. What does Paul know? He says, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. So Paul reasserts his apostolic authority here. And then, finally, he encourages the full exercise of the gifts in a proper and an orderly way. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. <coughs> so, the spirit, the attitude in which the gifts are to be exercised is love. And remember, love is looking out for the other. As we're exercising the gifts, we, we're looking out for the other. We want to bless and to benefit others. That, that's, that's the intended purpose of the gifts. <coughs> the atmosphere and environment in which the gifts are exercised is to be an orderly one. Because again, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And sadly, because these instructions have been ignored, many people have, have come into churches and had experiences that, that really frightened them, turned them off, scared them away. And so... We want the fullness of the Spirit of God to move among us, but we want 
to also have an environment that doesn't freak people out. And, of course, that's the way it should be. Because God is not weird. And Christians can be awfully weird at times. But God's not weird. And even though some different things will be happening, and, and you know, in some ways you could say it's weird. I, you know, the, the, the crowds of people in the days of Jesus, after spending a day with Jesus, they said, we have seen many strange things today. And, and unusual things, extraordinary things, things that they didn't normally see. So if we want to think of it like that, that's okay. But if we if weird sort of transfers over into like, man, I don't, this is just, if something's not right with this, then that's not, that's not the Lord. So as I said in the beginning, what I want to do today is I want to close now, not just a service, but I want to finish this series. And my goal, our goal has been that we would have a fresh experience with the Spirit and that we would begin to start to um, recognize the gifts that we have or call upon the Lord to impart to us gifts and that we would begin to share them with each other in the different worship contexts that we find ourselves in. And remember, we talked about how in a, in a situation like this, it's probably not gonna work where we... Um, you know, have two or three prophesy and others judge, or we have a couple of people speak in tongues and somebody interpret. Um, that, that's not going to happen in this environment, but it might very well happen in a community group. It might very well happen in your small men's group or, or ladies' group or somewhere like that. But what's more likely to happen in the atmosphere that we have here on Sundays is that we would have encounters with one another uh, before service, after service, as we linger, as we stay behind, as we pray with each other, as we pass by each other and we sense that the Lord wants us to speak and to someone, or uh, that, that's where that's going to happen. But that happens when we are filled with the Spirit and when we are stirring up the gifts.